My name's Kyle Zimmerman, um, and I want to tell you a story. Um, there was a young boy, probably by about the age of 10 years old. Um, he was doing what normal 10-year-old boys do. Um, he was walking around, picking up sticks, throwing them, walking. And he loved it. There was a, a, a field behind his house, but behind the field, there was a forest. He loved to go in there. And in, in the forest, there was a stream. It was, uh, it, was, it was maybe a good 15 feet wide. So it was a pretty, pretty decent-sized stream. And he loved to go over there and like kind of like find critters and throw rocks into the river and things like that. So one day he was walking along the river as he normally, or the stream as he normally would. And out of the corner of his his eye, he saw something moving and he kind of spun real fast. And sure enough, uh, he was terrified. It was a ginormous snake. And he didn't really know exactly what kind until it stood up like this, if you know what I'm talking about, and started doing this thing. Um, he recognized it right away. Um, and so um, as he was being terrified of this snake, the snake says, hey, don't be afraid. And that didn't make him less afraid. That made him more afraid that the snake was taught, is he losing his mind? What's going on? It's like the snake said, don't be afraid. I'm not like those other snakes. And he's like, what do you mean I'm not like those other snakes? He's like, I, I'm, I'm a, I know I'm a king cobra. But don't, you know, I'm a good snake. And he said, no, listen, my dad told me about King Cobras. You are one of the most deadliest snakes in all of the world. I am not messing with you. See you later. No, no, wait, wait, I need your help. What do you mean you need my help? I need your help getting across this stream. Well, just swim across. Aren't you a King Cobra? I, I know that King Cobras are known for being good swimmers. I can't swim. I, I need you to take me across this stream. No way, man. Um, you are the most deadliest snake in the world. Uh, my dad was very clear, don't mess with you. And he said, Did, but didn't your dad also tell you, don't judge a book by its cover? I'm a nice snake. I would never do anything to you. I actually need your help. Plus, I'm a magic snake. So obviously, I'm talking to you. So what I'll do for you, if you take me across this stream, I'll grant you one wish. So whatever you want, I'll grant you one wish. That sounded pretty good to the boy. And the, boy, and, and the snake did seem kind of nice. So, okay, are you sure you're not going to bite me? Because I know that if you bite me, I'm dead. No, no, no. Why would I bite you? I just need to get across the, I just need to get across the stream. You promise you won't bite me? I promise. Okay. Really reluctant. He goes up to the snake. The snake kind of slithers up to him and he kind of picks him up and kind of goes up on his shoulder. So the boy goes across the stream, swims across the stream, and the snake says, thank you so much for helping me. Thank you so much for helping me as he's paddling. And as he gets to the other side of the stream, he's, the boy's thinking, what should I ask for? Like what, what kind of, what kind of wish should I, should I ask for when I drop the snake off? So he gets to the edge of the other, other edge of the stream. He leans down to take the snake off and the snake slitters down, slitters down. And when he gets to the ground, the snake turns around and bites him right in the wrist. Sinks his venom in there. And he goes, the boy goes, ow, you promised me you wouldn't bite me. You promised me. And the snake said, you knew what I was when you picked me up. I think that this is a, a perfect parable, if you will, a modern day parable of the deceitfulness of sin 
and how it promises you that it's not like the other things. And it, and it promises you a wish and it promises you fulfillment in the end. But what it gives you is death. And I don't know exactly who told me that story, but I was little and I was really little, but I remember that story to this day. Why? Because that was such a great illustration, such a great story of how sin destroys your life. And it put it in a way that I completely understood. Like it promises us to be beautiful. It promises us all kinds of things that our heart desires. But what it gives us is in the end is death. Um, that's, we're, we're talking about parables. That's just a, 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 an intro into what we're gonna be talking about today. But before we begin, let's, let's pray. Um, Lord Jesus, um, this day is yours as every day is yours. Lord, I pray that you shut me up so that you can speak, um, that this would be all about you. And Lord God, I pray that uh, this message would fall on good soil. In your precious name, amen. amen. So we're going to be talking about parables. And you've heard a lot of uh, parables uh, last few Sundays. Um, I had a parable. We all get to choose our own parables. And I actually um, was really excited about my parable. So um, my parable is the parable of the sower. So, but what is a parable? Um, we're going to go over a little bit. Um, a parable is a short story that represents kingdom truth. We've gone over this before. This is just review. It's spoken in the common language of the day. <clears throat> Simple in language, but deep in meaning. It's confusing to some, while others is life-altering. And, and it, it, represents, represents a, it follows a progression of picture, mirror, window. But I decided to look into this. Um, I'm not a Greek, Greek scholar, nor am I going to pretend that I am, but I decided to look up what parable means. And it, what it means is this two words, is para and bole. And para means alongside or to beside, and, uh, and bole means to cast or to throw. You can kind of see the word ball in there. So it means to cast alongside. It's this idea of we're throwing out there, uh, casting something out for the purpose of comparison. So what Jesus did is he told these parables and he put them in everyday language, in everyday life. And what he did is he told a normal, simple story that represented a dynamic and depth of truth. It was beautiful. And some people got it and some people didn't. But the picture, I mean, I love this because I don't know if you guys remember when you were growing up, did your parents have pictures on the wall in the frame? Like I'll never forget this picture that rested behind this terrible 70s brick red couch with Afghan that was awful. But it sat above, it was so bad. It, it, the picture sat above that and it was the picture of the Emmaus Road. And it was a picture of Jesus talking to the two, uh, the two men as they were walking to Emmaus. And it, like that picture, that image is just ingrained in my head. And, and when I read that story uh, of the Emmaus Road, I cannot help but think of that picture on our wall. And it was awesome because it was like Jesus was speaking to them and they were just like, like enamored with what he was saying. And it was a beautiful, uh, it was awesome sunrise in the back or sun, sunset in the back. It was awesome. And, and I think that's what parables do. They give this picture. They allow you this picture in which you can look and observe the characters and draw out meaning. So first we have the picture. 
It's a short picture of everyday life and it reveals a kingdom principle. But the simple story gives us deep truth. And then there's a mirror. So when we, in a mirror, you look at yourself. So what this helps you do is you look at a parable. It tells you what the kingdom of God like, but then you look at it and look at yourself in this mirror of this parable and you begin to personally apply it. How do I fit into this parable? What's reflected back at me? Is there a paradigm shift that this story just gave me? And it offers us self-evaluation. In a mirror, you look at all of the things in the mirror and you can see everything. You can see the things that are great and the things that you hate about yourself. Those imperfections. I love those imperfections, by the way. Um, and then the window. The window helps us, the, the, the story helps us, uh, gives us a framework in which we can look through this window and it gives us the perception of real life through this story. So it helps us look through, and if you will, the framework of Jesus. If we looked at life through the framework of Jesus, this window, things would look a lot different than they really do because we look at them through the eyes of faith. Today, we're going to talk about one of my absolute favorite parables, and the Bible entitles it the parable of the sower. Personally, I hate this title. Uh, it's not inspired by the word of God when you look in your Bible and it says the parable of the sower. That's not inspired by the word of God because actually the sower is the least in the story. Like he comes on the first two verses, but after that you don't see him again. And the thing is, the sower is kind of irrelevant. Like it's, he's really, really important in the fact that he has to sow. Like if he doesn't sow, the four soul is kind of irrelevant. If, if he doesn't sow seed, nothing's going to grow. So he's very, very important in that aspect. But after the first two verses, we don't see him again. And the sower literally could be anyone. Anyone who's sowing the word of God, it doesn't matter. But anyone sowing the seed of God. So he's, he's absolutely indispensable in the fact that he has to sow seed. But the parable doesn't talk about him again at all. So I like to call this the parable of the four soils. We're going to go through it together. Um, but um, in the first two verses of the story, he shows up. We don't see him again. And the four soils is what we're going to, he actually breaks down and Jesus talks about. Um, this parable, what I like about this parable is that it's found in every single one of the synoptic gospels. So there's four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John has no parables, doesn't tell a parable at all. So there's three in which Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell parables. This is one of like six, I believe, of all the parables that is in every single one. So obviously if it's in every single one, the writer felt that it was really, really important that you guys get this, that, that, that we hear the parable of the soils, all three. So it's Matthew 13, Mark 4, and Luke 8. And I'm gonna kind of, I'm gonna read through one, but then I'm gonna kind of borrow from the others as well that tell the exact same story, but use different words sometimes. And it's super helpful sometimes when you look at all three. I looked at all three in the NIV, but then I also looked in other versions as well. And maybe even some Greek. Like I said, I'm not a Greek scholar, but this was really helpful in this particular, um, this particular verse. It pulled out some really good stuff. Got some nuggets going on. So if you turn with me, uh, Mark 4, it's gonna be on your screen, but Mark 4, uh, verses one through 20. And it says, again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things about parables. And in this teacher, um, 
and his teaching said, listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. When he was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like the seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others like seeds sown among, sown among thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. So we have four soils. And I named them the path, rocky soil, among the thorns, and good soil. Um, I, don't, I don't want to call it thorny soil, because I don't want to keep saying that, number one. But number two, uh, it's not thorny soil. The soil itself is not thorny. The thorns are in the soil. So among the thorns also gives a picture of what it is. So the path, rocky soil, among the thorns, and good soil. So the path in Jesus' day was often beaten down by the hooves of animals. It had been trampled on by men for years. I mean, it was about the consistency of concrete. Any seed that falls on this particular place is not going to be able to get into the soil in which to get its nourishment in order to grow and germinate. Um, This made it a perfect feeding ground for the farmer's arch enemy. So we've had a lot of issues. Like farmers are really like, this is not a great time right now. We've had so much rain. Rain's the enemy right now. Things aren't great. But normally there's these things called scarecrows. Um, They're literally two scarecrows. That's not just a tricky, clever name. They don't want birds to eat their grain, their corn. Okay. So, so it's, it's really important that they have good defense against birds. So I don't know how many of you have ever been annoyed or had maybe a bird in your house. Raise your hand. Ever had a nice story about a bird in your house? Some of you snicker because you had squirrels in your house or something like that. But, but we've had 
lots of different weird animals in our house over the last 20 years. I mean, it's true. I could tell you lots of stories, but since we're talking about birds, I decided to tell you about our bird story. So um, I am bivocational. So I run self-storage facilities, you know, where you put all your junk when you're moving or whether you got too much stuff. Y'all need to store up your treasure in heaven, by the way. But anyway... If you did actually do that, I wouldn't have a business, but at the same time, I'm there for those who need it. But I run self-storage facilities. I am in the middle of renting a storage unit to a customer and I get a phone call and I see it's my wife on my cell phone and I politely pick it up and I say, honey, I'm with a customer right now. I'll, I'll call you back in a minute. There's a bird in our house. <laughs> I'm like, whoa, like, I'm sorry, like, I'm going to have to call you back. I have to help the customer click. Help the customer. Help the customer. Call her right back. There is a bird in our house. Come home right now. I'm like, it's 4 o'clock. I get off at 5.30. Can you hang in there like another hour? Another hour and a half. Kyle, I don't like you right now. I know, I know. Just hang in there. A bird is not going to kill you. Okay, okay, so fine. So I get home. And uh, I walk up and I see this bird fluttering in the window there. So, um, and it, it's been all over the house, she said. So I get home and so I decide to uh, gear up, okay? I am not going to let a bird take me out, okay? So I put on my hunting shoes, which I don't even hunt, but I have them for some reason. And I put them on and I, I, got, I got my uh, sweatpants on and I got a sweatshirt on. And I go into the garage and I grab my son's hockey. He doesn't play hockey, but he has a hockey helmet for some reason. That's five times sizes too small for me. And I put it on and my cheeks are like this. And, and I got that on, but then I realized my sweatshirt's kind of baggy. And I was like, I am not going to let it like fly up my shirt. Like that would be terrifying. So I like decide to like pull my sweatpants up and like jack them up. So this is where this, I got video of this. You're welcome. Um, we're coming in right now where I've just got my gear on. I've got some things, um, some weapons here, as you'll see, and we're going to go to war here. Go ahead and play that video. Freak out. You should just open that window next to it. You didn't really. Oh, oh my gosh. Come here, Bernie. Can you turn it up open a little bit? Open the window next to it. Come into my... I'm scared. Oh, oh my gosh, right. oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Come on, come here, buddy. Ah, oh my gosh. So close. Ah, there's, oh. there's holes in the, there's like a little space you can get in there. I'm going to try to do this. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh, I can't believe it. Oh, oh my gosh. Oh, oh my gosh, come He's on. okay. He's okay. He's a good guy. Dude, if you even... Ready? 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 Where is it? I saved you! I saved you! Alright. Don't ever underestimate me. I said never underestimate me. Yeah. So... Thank the Lord for iPhones, right? Yeah, so, and he's still living a great birdie life. He just sent me a postcard recently. He's doing great. 
But he was in my house, not where he was supposed to be. Um, so birds can be a nuisance. So the birds along the path, the birds along the path came and they ate up, they ate up the soil or they ate up the seed, excuse me, on the, on the, uh, the path, excuse me. So the, this, this particular seed, this path represents the hard heart, represents where the seed is impenetrable. It just sits there until the enemy comes and he takes away the seed so you don't have to think about it anymore. It's kind of annoying to the one with the hard heart. It cannot penetrate. Luke 8 puts it this way. Those along the path are the ones who hear and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. This is the path. I have no idea if anyone in this room is on the path. Is, or the, is the path. You have resisted the gospel for so long. You've resisted the love of Jesus for so long or you for some reason think that he can't forgive you. You've done too many bad things. I have no idea who you are if you're in this room right now. But Jesus wants you to believe and be saved. But this is the, this is the soil of the hard heart and this is a reality, okay? That is the path. Let's move along to the rocky soil. It says the seed sown in rocky places hear the word and at once receive it with joy. This is good news, it seems. I mean, this is it. They receive the gospel with joy. At the beginning, this seems like a dramatic conversion. And I don't know about you, but at this point, I'm excited for this person. But, but, since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble, or difficult circumstances, or persecution comes, they quickly fall away. Luke 8 says it this way, they believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. Do we really believe that we're going to go through life as a Christian without time of testing? Do we think that we're going to get away from the fact we're going to have difficult circumstances or persecution, if you will, or be hated for what you stand for or believe in? It's coming faster and faster in this day where we're going to be hated because of what we believe. Are we ready for that? Are we ready and armed with love to, to battle that? Because it's coming. And if you're not rooted deep into the soil, it says that you might fall away. They quickly fall away. They had no root. Get that. They had no root. They did not have the root. The root of David in Revelation 5.5. 5. They had a form of Christianity maybe and they believed it with joy and they tried the Christian thing but they were not rooted in Jesus. Because if they were, they'd be transformed from the inside out and everything else would look different. But they tried the Christian thing. Didn't work out for them. They had a form of godliness, but denied its power. They raised their hand, sighed in the card. A couple of years later, there was no evidence of a transformed life. And that's sad and that breaks my heart. And as a youth, youth minister, I see this all the time. I see the gospel being received with great joy, but when it comes down to it, they're really not willing to give up their life. It's just, I want, you know, the Chipotle American life, 
but I want my Jesus guac on top kind of a thing. You know, guacamole is kind of indispensable from that whole deal, but like, I don't really want it through the whole burrito. I just want a little, little Jesus on top. Um, and that doesn't work. It doesn't work. Back in the 1700s, there was an amazing man named George Whitfield. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Kind of an important guy in, in the human history. Um, he'd preached the gospel to seas of people, thousands and thousands of people, sometimes 30,000 people at a time in these huge fields with absolutely no microphone. 30,000 people. He was one of the main players in the Great Awakening in Britain and Great, in, in America. He preached to literally millions of people in his lifetime. So just think Billy Graham of the 1700s. He would always give an opportunity at the end of his preaching to allow people to respond to the gospel and commit to following Jesus. Droves would come. After the meeting, people would come up to him and ask him, Mr. Whitfield, how many people got saved tonight? How many people became Christians tonight? And he would reply, we'll see in a few years. We'll see in a few years. It's a sad commentary, but it is the truth. It wasn't because somehow these people needed to earn their salvation in the next two years. No. But when a life is transformed, we will see what happens. When someone's transformed from the inside out, there will be fruit on that tree that you, that's tangible and you can plick, or plick, pluck, pick and pluck. That was, that's what happened there. Pick and pluck and eat of that fruit. And it will be delicious because it will be the fruit of Jesus. It will be the fruit of the Spirit. But George Whitfield understood the heart of the rocky soil. And then there's among the thorns. Matthew 13, 22 says, The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word making it unfruitful. I just had a feeling, I read this in all three of the, the passages, and the word worries is used all three times there. Worries of this life. Worries, worries, worries. And I, and I thought, and I looked at other, other uh, translations and it was cares of this world or anxieties of this world. And I just felt in my heart there was gonna be something deep about this word and I need to study it. So I did, I, I, I looked in the Greek and this Greek word is, is merimna, that means nothing to you, merimna, which, which is translated cares as anxieties, worries. But it comes from this root verb derivative called merizo, which means to divide or to separate from the whole. It seeks to divide us from the root. The cares of this world tend to divide us from Jesus. And the, the implication here, it's said in one of the Greek translations I was using, distraction. Distraction that we could be choked out by the thorns of division and distraction in our life from the cares of this world. You really don't have to do a whole lot to be caught up in the cares of this world. Mark 4 19 adds, 
it, it talks about the care, the, the worries of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth. But then it says in Mark four, none of the other places it says, and the desire for other things. It doesn't have to be something terrible and sinful. All it has to be is something other than Jesus, a pursuit other than him, running after other things. That's what the Israelites did. This cycle that they went into where they get into bondage, then they cry out, then they're delivered, then they get caught up in other things and they take on the customs of the, the, the cultures that they get put into. They just get caught up in life and Jesus takes a back seat. David Platt talks about this, uh, this particular soil as the soil of the divided heart. And this is what he said. And he, it was so, like, I don't know if you've ever seen David Platt, but his eyes are bugging out of his head. They're split fly, flying everywhere. I mean, it's awesome. But this is what he said. Watch out for the cares of this world. Consumption with the day to day. I need to do this. I want to accomplish this. I got to do this. I got to do this. If we were not careful, this kind of consumption will choke out the word from our hearts. In a similar way, the deceitfulness of riches. Do not miss the subtle danger that is implied in this imagery. Thorns do not choke suddenly. Thorns choke gradually, almost unknowingly. And this is how, undoubtedly, how the deceitfulness of riches works. Grabbing hold of more and more and more of your heart with the desire for more and more and more things and the consumption in more and more and more things before you realize that your heart is totally choked by the stuff of this world. This is extremely dangerous for us in this room. Do not let wealth, possessions in this world choke out the heart of the kingdom in you. And do not be so prideful as to think that that would not happen to you for that would only be evidence that it is happening to you. The divided heart who gives token affection to Jesus while giving an affection giving affection to all the things of the world. I was broken by this statement. Matthew says the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the good soil. So that was the, that was the among the thorns, the choking, the squeezing, and it's, it's subtle. It's subtle. And then there's the good soil. Matthew says, the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. Mark says, others like seed sown on good soil, hear the word and accept it and produce a crop. Luke says of the same thing, but the seed of the good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce the crop. This didn't, this didn't fall away um, when trouble came. This, this particular soil didn't fall away when trouble came, didn't buckle under the pressure of living the kingdom life. They persevered, persevered when the time of testing came and they stood the test. Not necessarily someone who has mastered the material, but someone who has been mastered by the master. Not someone who's necessarily mastered the material, 
but someone who's been mastered by the master. 30, 60, 100 times what was sown. Think about that. You plant a tree in your front yard and all of a sudden you got 100 trees. That is only a supernatural thing. That didn't happen by some ambitious birds that planted them there or anything like that. That is a supernatural thing. When God comes into your life, when Jesus comes and takes over and cleans house, there's capacity to do some amazing things through you. And he can grow that little seed. Now, first of all, that's just a miracle in itself. Think about this. I'm going to take this little seed. And in this seed, there's so much potential in this seed. All I have to do is plant it in the ground and I go to sleep and I water it every day. And somehow, some way, God makes this thing grow into something that's worthwhile. That is just a miracle if you think about that. But then not only that, he turns it into 30, 60, or 100 fold. And I always wonder, like, what? What does that mean? 30, 60, 100 fold, is there significance to that? I studied so many commentaries. Nobody has any significance for the 30, 60, and 100. It just is more than what was planted. I looked and I looked and I looked. Nobody could give me. But there's two things that they talked about. One is this multiplication. If we're going to be, if we're really his, if we're good soil and we, re, and we have Jesus oozing out of every pore, we are going to have some multiplication in our life. Multiplication of two things. One is fruit and one is disciples. This fruit, this fruit of the spirit that grows, people should be able to look at your life and see the fingerprints of the most high God. And if Jesus is, is got this thing controlled, man, it's going to happen. And people are going to be able to take and eat of the fruit that they see. That's one. You're going to have multiplied fruit. There's just people you might think about. They just want you to think of their life, man. There's just so much fruit in there. You're just like overwhelmed. Like which one do I even pick? Because they're amazing. They are so enamored with Jesus. It's ridiculous. And then the second is disciples. In this, in this story, the good soil becomes the sower. If we're really good soil, if we're really good soil, we actually transform into the sower. You, get my, you see what I'm, you smell what I'm stepping in? You get it? If you are truly his, if you are truly good soil, you are going to be, become the sower. And then the path and those four soils are out there. But you're going to have multiplied disciples. You're going to have people in your life that you are bringing to Jesus, to the foot of the cross, introducing him to this amazing gospel that you have. In Matthew 7, 16 and 20, it says, by your fruits, you will know them. Don't you ever meet somebody that you're with them for five minutes, you have no idea who they are, but you just go, I bet they're a Christian. You ever done that? So many times. I just want to even ask them, like, are you a Christian? I think I've done it maybe a dozen times. I was wrong once. He was just a really, really nice atheist. I don't know. I don't know. But the... When, when you are a believer in Christ and when you love Jesus, when he has mastered you, like people can see that. So it's clear that Jesus is saying that every person, including everyone in this room, is one of these four soils. You are not excluded from this story. Jesus was talking about 
us. We have to be honest with ourselves. And I believe Jesus is really asking us. I think the point of the story is, what soil are you? What soil are you? Let's pray. Lord God, I just pray that we're honest with ourselves. And Lord, I just pray that you would just give us such clear direction and guidance, Lord. Uh, We want to be mastered by the master. And uh, I just pray that you would give us such a, a burning in our heart for you, Lord God, that the cares of this world seem so insignificant, that the glitter, the glittery world, the Chuck E. Cheese world that we live in, Lord God, would just seem so yuck compared to the presence of God, compared to the work and ministry of God, compared to your, the secret place, compared to your word. Like that everything would like grow faint and dim into the background. Because we're on this planet for a purpose and the purpose is relationship with you. But also it's to grab as many hands as we run towards the kingdom as we can. So Lord, I just pray that you would just do this in us, Lord God. That we make much of you in our lives. In your name, amen.